electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange, and here's what's ahead this hour. An exclusive interview with Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. We'll speak to him about today's softer-than-expected CPI report. Does it change his mind about the need to taper sooner rather than later? His thoughts are just moments away, plus we'll have instant reaction. And it's not just home buying that's hot right now. There are bidding wars for rentals. We'll bring you the sky-high numbers, plus Coinbase, Kathy, and China. We're serving up all of those stories in rapid fire. But before all of that, let's get to the markets this hour. Record highs, I think. Dom Chu has the numbers. They Dom. are. They are on fire. So rapid fire, those topics. The markets are on fire right now. It's not a massive amount of the upside. But as Kelly pointed out, we still do have gold stars for the Dow Industrials and the S&P 500. Both of those stocks are near their highs, or indexes are both near their highs of the session, with the Dow and the S&P again hitting records underperformance in the Nasdaq overall. The, the Nasdaq is right now hovering right around some key support levels that some traders are watching to see if there could be a further possible breakdown in that big and powerful Nasdaq trade that we've seen over the last year. With regard to a key part of the markets right now, uh, Kelly mentioned Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. Interest rates still a very key focus here. Ten-year note yields, by the way, have risen for seven straight days. That's seven straight days of selling pressure on the 10-year government note. Financial sector spider here hits a record high in trading today. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley both hit records as well. Capital One, a lot of green on the screen here with regard to the financials. Keep an eye on those record highs in that sector. And then if you take a look at other parts of the market, the consumer with regard to Target, steel with regard to Nucor, Martin Marietta, construction aggregates and concrete gravel, that sort of thing. Each of these stocks has hit record highs in trading so far today. So again, Target, Costco, Dollar General among the consumer names showing some real relative strength. And then the infrastructure trade still very much alive and well. We'll see if it cools off anytime soon, Kelly. But for right now, tons of upside momentum in those parts of the market. Yeah. Back over to you. An impressive year today, Gaines. Dom, thank you very much. Well, this morning's CPI data suggested that maybe inflation has peaked. It's not gone, but it's not rising as quickly this month either. So what does it all mean for the Fed, and especially for members calling for an earlier tapering? Let's ask one. Here now for an exclusive interview. Steve Leisman is joined by Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. A pleasure to have you both here. Steve? Kelly, thank you very much. And Robert Kaplan, Dallas Fed President, thanks for joining us. I think the best thing to do is start exactly where Kelly instructed us to begin. It's best not to uh, get, get on her cross-eyed there. Um, let me ask you about the inflation report this morning. Did you see moderation in it? Does it support the notion of uh, inflation being transitory, or do you see more persistence in the number? Yeah, so the, the outlook, uh, the CPI number today was probably consistent with our outlook, which uh, we're still expecting a year-end PCE to be in the year about 3.8%. We're expecting some of these extreme moves uh, used cars, other items to moderate, but we're still expecting a broadening of inflation pressures heading into next year. And our forecast for PC inflation next year is in the neighborhood of two and a half percent. So I, I think this report's basically consistent with that outlook. 
Is that too high? Are you willing to abide two and a half percent inflation? The the issue is um, uh, when, when if we have an extended period of time, this is my view, where you're running a two and a half percent or a little above. Our job at the Fed is to anchor inflation at two percent. And so uh, I think we're going to have to be attentive to whether uh, we see prospects that this excess over two percent is going to run for some time, but moderate back down to two, or whether this is going to be more persistent. And at this point, uh, I don't know the answer to that. And I think we have to have a balanced approach and be prepared to react, uh, depending on how this unfolds. Robert, uh, the strong jobs report in July or for July uh, means we did about two million jobs over the past two months. Uh, it seems like that part of the mandate is going okay. I want to turn now to your views on assets, on, on asset purchases and policy more broadly. Uh, last time uh, you spoke publicly, you said you were in favor of tapering soon and sooner rather than later. Are you uh, yep. ready at this point? Do you have in your mind a timetable for that tapering? Uh, it would be my view that if the economy unfolds uh, between now and our September meeting, if it unfolds the way I expect, uh, I would be in favor of announcing a plan at the September meeting and beginning tapering in October. Oh, that's that's pretty aggressive. Would you say that's uh, you have a lot of support on the board or the committee for that kind of idea, or is that just uh, you? Uh, I, I don't know from the from the, the Lone Star State. I would say there's a range of views, uh, and uh, the, the main thing I've emphasized. Uh, whether, whether we announce it in September or whether we announce it November 1st, uh, I think there's a range of views. I, I, I just think the committee is in a much better place than we were two months ago and that we'll debate, we'll disagree, we'll have to see how the economy unfolds. But the reason I'm saying we ought to begin the tapering soon is uh, I think these purchases are very well equipped to stimulate demand. But we don't have a demand problem in the economy. We've got plenty of demand. Our issue is supply. And these purchases are not very well equipped to deal with that issue. They, they were appropriate in 2020. They were appropriate in early 21. And so my, my thought is I'd rather take the foot off the accelerator soon uh, and reduce the RPMs uh, and as we're on more level terrain and I think it will give us more flexibility down the road to have patience on the Fed funds rate. But but what I don't want to do is keep running at this speed for too long, and then we're going to have to take more aggressive action down the road. So I'd rather begin this process soon, and I would like to taper once we start gradually. And for me, gradual means over uh, approximately eight months. Over approximately eight months. I, it's Kelly here, and I appreciate you letting me jump in. I have actually so many questions, as Steve probably can imagine, after hearing your comments uh, to the, here for the last few moments. I suppose then the main one I actually want to ask you right now is about bond yields, uh, President Kaplan. So why do you think they're down at 1.35 percent? Do you think they hold any economic information at this point? <laughs> Are they being distorted by the Fed itself? Um, that, that, you know, I hear everything that you're saying, and it, it all makes sense to me. Except that. And the people who are now arguing that inflation has peaked are saying bond yields knew this months ago. They've already figured it out. Yeah, I, I do think the bond market is looking through these these high inflation prints and they're they're expecting the Fed 
to uh, do what it needs to do to anchor inflation at 2%. Uh, in addition, uh, there is an enormous amount of liquidity globally and in the United States. We're an aging society. There's an enormous amount of money in pension funds, and there's a very strong bid for the 10-year Treasury. And in addition, after we get over the horizon from this rebound from the pandemic, uh, workforce growth is decelerating in the United States due to aging. Productivity doesn't appear to be strong enough to offset it. Uh, and if that's true, out your growth looks sluggish, not just in the United States, but globally. And so I think all those factors are feeding in to where you see the 10-year Treasury. President Kaplan, uh, I want to continue the discussion on monetary policy, which is really related to what uh, Kelly was talking about. You, you began that and made a couple comments there about interest rates. Can you walk us through the sequencing in your mind? You talked about an eight-month taper. I didn't do the math, but I think if I add uh, two months and six months, it brings me to June. I just did that live on national television. Um, are you uh, thinking that interest rate hikes begin immediately thereafter? So I am explicitly saying, and I've been saying publicly, I am divorcing my decision making on adjusting purchases for my views on the Fed funds rate. And so I don't want to tie them together. There's different metrics and a different set of criteria I'll look at in deciding whether or not to raise the Fed funds rate. What I'm saying is these purchases are not well suited to the environment we're in now. And like a doctor who's prescribing medication to a patient that's been through a trauma, if you start to see side effects uh, and you don't think the medication is very effective, and the side effects I'm talking about, excess risk-taking, uh, uh, elevated home prices, excesses and imbalances in the economy, I think the best thing to do is early begin weaning off that medication. And I think by doing that, uh, we actually may be able to be more patient down the road on the Fed funds rate. But I do not want to tie the two together. It is not the primary factor that I'm thinking about in calling for uh, uh, adjusting purchases soon. I, I get that, President Kaplan. But one of the distinguishing features of your background being on uh, the committee is that you were a, uh, an investor and, and on Wall Street for a while and know a little bit about this and how some of your uh, uh, former brethren on the street think. And, and, and they're going to think, hey, uh, Kaplan wants to, uh, wants to get rid of the, uh, the, the asset purchases, and that clears the way for uh, raising interest rates. Maybe tell us what your criteria are for uh, uh, raising rates and whether or not that's something you think would happen in 2022 or 2023. Thank you. So for, for, as a former observer of the Fed, I think as a, and a market participant myself for, for a long time, if, if the Fed says that these are two different decision criteria, uh, as a market participant, I, I would listen to that. Uh, and, uh, and I do believe that. And so that's why I'm saying it. Uh, I, as you know, in my SEP submission, Summary of Economic Projections in June, my first rate increase is in 2022. But that's not a decision I'm making right now. That's just a forecast. I'll make that decision uh, as the economy evolves into 2022. I am saying there's a near-term decision. And I think the sooner we make that decision, I, I believe we're going to have more flexibility, if necessary, to be patient 
on the Fed funds rate. And yeah, I, I think as a market participant, I think that logic is worth listening to. President Kaplan, it's Kelly here. And just one more to, to kind of dig into your explanation of why we don't need to continue the pace of asset purchases. In other words, if you say we have a supply, not a demand issue in the economy, can you explain how the labor force supply ties into that? So if we have people who have left the labor force for early retirements uh, because they have work from home flexibility, maybe allows them to live somewhere differently, lower cost of living, uh, only one person has to work and so forth. Can you tell us what you're seeing in terms of those quote unquote dropouts and how that affects the supply side and overall the, the sort of fundamental strength of the economy? So there's two types of supply issues. One is uh, is materials, semiconductors, a broad range of uh, supply demand issues for materials, and and the co and the Delta variant may actually make those more prolonged uh, because they affect the ability to to uh, to produce and to produce globally. And you know I think what I what contacts are telling me is semiconductor shortages, for example, are likely, in, in their view, to persist longer than people might be expecting. And the demand for semiconductors is increasing while the industry is trying to increase supply. So one person described it as trying to go up a down escalator. We're, we're trying to increase production as fast as we can, but demand is also increasing. So that's one set of issues. The second set of issues is labor. And as you pointed out, we think uh, at the Dallas Fed, there's been approximately 3 million retirements hmm. since February of 2020. Many of those people may not come back into the labor force. And then there's been a million and a quarter to a million and a half people who are caregivers, mainly working mothers who have left the workforce. I'm hopeful that with expanded daycare, schools reopening in person, some percentage of them will come back. But the point is the labor force is tighter then the headline statistics indicate the number of job openings in the United States is at a record. Quits rate is historically high. And so all that tells me these supply demand imbalances are likely to go on for an extended period of time. But they don't have to do with demand. They have to do uh, they're going to create supply issues. And so these purchases are not terribly well equipped to deal with those issues. And I, I think it'd be healthy for us to recognize that. President Kaplan, um, to an extraordinary degree, and I've been covering the Fed for a very long time, uh, Chair Powell and, and other members of the committee, such as yourself, have talked a lot about how the importance of what the Fed does for average Americans. Uh, but today, the government reported real earnings. When it reports CPI and inflation, it says how much wage gains have been deflated by uh, inflation that's out there. Um, and they're negative now for, I believe, the fourth straight month. How does the Fed step up and argue that it's now doing uh, right by average Americans and average American workers when, in fact, the inflation that it's abiding is eroding wage gains? Yes. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time, as you know, in low moderate income communities in my district. And what what I see uh, time and time again in my conversations, uh, people in those communities are reminding me uh, our, our mandate is is full employment, but it's also price stability. And the share of wallet, as you just pointed out, that low moderate income communities are spending on gasoline, cars, uh, other items, is, uh, it, it is creating challenges for them to make ends meet. This is, again, back to our purchases, this is one of the reasons why uh, I would prefer from a risk management point of view to ease off the accelerator, 
uh, and, and reduce uh, reduce the RPMs on what we're doing, because I think these imbalances, uh, we're going to have to be patient and allow them to unfold. But I think anchoring inflation at 2%, uh, I take that very seriously. It's a critical car- part of our mandate. Inclusive growth, inclusive prosperity is not just jobs. It's also price stability. And we'll leave it there. Uh, President Kaplan, thank you so much for all of your thoughts on this today. It's great to have you with us. And Steve, we really appreciate you for bringing us that interview, doing a great job with it, our Steve Leisman. We've seen some big moves in bond yields. Now, yes, it was uh, during the course of that discussion, but we've also had a super strong auction for 10-year treasuries. Let's get right over to Rick Santelli with a little bit more on what just happened here. Rick? You know, I'll tell you what, Kelly. I've been dabbling in markets or trading in markets or covering markets since 1979, and I don't know if I've ever seen an auction this aggressive. It really was spectacular. 41 billion 10-year notes. The auction, the Dutch auction yield was 1.34. Three basis points lower than the one issued market was trading. Lower yield, higher price, and it was an awfully high price. The metrics are historic. The bid to cover at 2.65, the best since May of 2020. 77.2 on indirects. Indirects are those foreign investors we pay so much attention to. That's the highest ever. The highest ever. And if we look at directs, it was the only thing that was a bit light. It was a bit under the 10 auction average at 13.1. But remember who this group is. This is mutual funds, all the uh, big institutions that have bellyfuls of treasuries that can dabble in the secondary market. And finally, maybe the best. You know, think about a big buffet, okay? Because there was nothing left after this auction. The dealers only took 9.6%. Having a single digit on dealer participation is unheard of. A spectacular A-plus on this auction. Tomorrow we complete it with 27 billion 30-year bonds. Kelly? Rick, I got to just ask you one follow-up question on this. So when, with all the superlatives you just mentioned, why are we sitting here in mid-August all of a sudden with people just going after these 10-year Treasury notes? Why, what accounts for this dramatic response today? Well, I can only think of my very good friend, Dom Chu. In the very beginning of this segment, he said seven sessions in a row where there's been selling, pushing up yields. Obviously, investors and maybe especially foreign investors think, well, you know, we've sold off. We push rates up. This is a great place to buy in. And maybe they're right. But my charts say maybe they should have studied a little harder. (laughs) All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli uh, with the latest auction results there. As you mentioned, we're seeing yields slide on the back of that strong demand in those results. Going to take a quick break, but we're going to get more reaction right after this to what we just heard from the Fed's Robert Kaplan. We're keeping an eye on markets, hanging on to record high trading here. Uh, We'll talk about the latest inflation data, Kaplan's belief uh, about what the Fed should do here, and one of my next guests who says they shouldn't move till early next year. We're also watching shares of threat up this afternoon, turning lower, down 3% now after beating uh, estimates on its second quarter results, giving an upbeat forecast. And we're going to have the CEO here to talk exclusively about the quarter, their path to profitability and the impact of COVID. Look forward to that a little bit later this hour. We're back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. 
That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. There's been a lot of noise about an early taper, with Morgan Stanley the latest to move up their time frame. We just spoke to Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. So what is he signaling, especially on the heels of this morning's softer-than-expected inflation report? Joining me now, Michael Schumacher is head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. Brian Reynolds is chief market strategist for Reynolds Strategy. And the one thing you both agree on is kind of the opposite of what Kaplan was just saying. He still thinks we should do an early taper. Both of you seem to think not so fast. Michael, I'll start with you. You say, ignore the uh, chorus and wait for the lead singer, meaning let's wait to see what Powell has to say, right? That's right, Kelly. And, and Jay Powell so far has been batting away questions about tapering right and left. Any press conference, he just swats them away. And if you think about it from his perspective, what does he really care about? He cares about the labor market, which is doing better. But he's not going to really know a lot about it until September. So next month, people go back to school. We'll know more about the status of the labor market with respect to unemployment benefits rolling off. Those data come out in October. So we think it's probably too soon by at least a couple of months for Jay Powell to get excited about tapering. And so Brian, wait. sure, you think, Brian, that, you know, the reason will become less pressing because inflation to you has peaked. You know, you're looking at used car prices. You're seeing things roll over there, right? Last week, I wrote that this edition of the reflation trade is likely over. It's stretched. Most people are looking for higher prices. I noted that wholesale used car prices are going down. The CPI used car component lags that by two to four months. Today, we saw the CPI for used cars go from 10% to 0.2. That's pretty much in line with what I was expecting, which means that I think next month we get a negative number for the CPI of used cars. Additionally, oil prices are very vulnerable. If you look at the oil price curve, it inverted in the middle of the curve from 24 to 25. That tells me there's a greater risk of oil prices coming down than going up. Hmm. And I know that you're thinking, you know, if, if we're rolling over on the inflation picture, bond yields are probably headed lower, stock prices higher. We've talked uh, quite a few times about that. Michael, is that your view as well here? You know, I was just saying to Rick, where's all this buying demand coming from? He says, you know, it's, it's everywhere, basically. They, you know, there's, there's such demand. Robert Kaplan, I think, said the same kind of thing, that there's huge demand for uh, yeah, there's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of demand for treasuries. And if Michael's right, there's not going to be uh, a big concern about inflation and the trade-off in holding some of this paper for the next little while. Yeah, it's probably a little bit too soon to say the inflation dragon is dead. We'd say peak inflation has probably arrived and passed. I'd agree with that. My friends in Wells Fargo Economics do a lot of great work, and they make the case that core inflation is still going to be very high through the balance, not just this year, but next year. So the inflation backdrop's improving, but it's not great. So to the question of why people are buying treasuries, I think Rick had it right. The market's backed up six, seven sessions in a row. Inflation does look like the peak has passed. So maybe from a tactical standpoint, a decent time to get in. But for a fundamental buyer, for most of your viewers, Kelly, I'd say wait. 
Okay. Take it easy. Take a deep breath. Not quite time to get in. And Brian, what would you tell investors in terms of bond yields and stock prices for the next move of this market? I don't think I've ever seen Rick Santelli so excited as about a, over a 10-year auction as he was just a few minutes ago in the segment <laughs> before us. That points out how much underlying demand there is for bonds from pension funds and insurance companies. If yields go up a little, they jump on them and they buy them. More importantly, from a big perspective, Big picture perspective, that means next month when the credit market opens up after Labor Day, there's going to be a surge in corporate bond activity that's going to lead to a flood of buybacks and mergers. The investment banks can't hire enough junior bankers to keep up with these deals, and they're likely going to accelerate. That's a great point. And we've seen those pay uh, curves moving up for the young bankers. And the way that you describe it, it all kind of makes sense. Uh, Supportive of equities here as well as we have another day at record highs. Brian, again, you were early on this last week. We appreciate you joining us, Brian Reynolds. Michael Schumacher, really appreciate it as well, uh, talking through the actual timeline taper we should be expecting. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you. and We'll check in soon. Coming up next, could we see the first monthly drop this year for residential REITs as the Fed's Esther George says froth in the housing market is starting to back off? At the same time, bidding wars for housing rentals are starting to pick up. What will it all mean for the REITs? We'll explain. Stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release. With Canva Magic Right. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The NCAA slapping Baylor University with a four-year probation and other sanctions. This follows a years-long investigation into a sexual assault scandal that led to the firing of the school's football coach and others. The probe found that Baylor shielded football players from discipline for sexual violence, but that Baylor's failings did not violate NCAA rules. The probation is related to recruiting and other violations. A federal judge has ordered Donald Trump's accounting firm to turn over some financial records of the former president to a House panel, although the judge is not ordering that all requested documents be released. And in California, the Dixie Fire continuing to grow after destroying nearly 550 homes. The largest fire in state history has now destroyed more than half a million acres. However, containment has risen to 30 percent. And on the news, firefighters making progress against the massive fire just as heat and higher winds return. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. Up next, we have rapid fire. Where's the volatility? What does it mean to be the Amazon of assets? And people are apparently sick of slimming down. You see Weight Watchers stock today? We'll tell you about all this right after the break. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to discuss a few more stories that should be on your radar, CNBC's Michael Santoli, Darren Drabosa, along with Michael Yoshikami, the founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Welcome to everybody. And let's begin with this good old saying, Michael Santoli in the market, never short a dull market. The low volatility ETF, the USMV, hitting an all-time high today, along with the broader markets. Don't be fooled by the wild swings in stocks like GameStop and AMC. They are definitely not indicative, Mike. You look at this low volatility chart. It's like a probably about a 30-degree angle, just smooth and steady yeah. as she goes. And it, while yep. we're all over here talking about, you know, 30% swings in, in the meme stocks, I mean, the overall market is just steady as she goes. 
Yeah, it's the tortoise strategy is working. Now, while it's at an all-time high, the low volatility ETF is still lagging both the overall S&P 500 year-to-date as well as the, the, the high beta, the more volatile, spicier-type stocks. But to your point, a lot of the more aggressive uh, parts of the market have been pushed aside. If you look at, like you say, GameStop, AMC, not been the place to be, even things like solar stocks. So, yes, uh, this is kind of a sleep-at-night uh, stable type quality skew toward uh, toward equity owners. Michael Yoshikami, I, this tells me also that there's a market for everybody. You know, if you want, if you have clients who want the excitement, you know, and the big moves of uh, swinging stocks, that's fine. And if you want something that you can kind of sleep on at night, well, there's that too. Yeah, exactly. And you know, our clients are into the sleep at night uh, sort of scenario. You know, the the huge swings are great for traders, for investors. You know, buy good companies, good cash flow, good solid earnings, maybe some dividends, low volatility in the long term. The magic of compounding is just a killer when it comes to increasing your net worth. Yeah, we're looking at names like Norton. There's the list, you know, Home Depot. I'm sure these are all, you know, style factors. They come in and out. But again, uh, this is the other story of the market that you're not hearing quite so much about. Uh, let's move on to something that a little bit uh, more traditional in terms of volatility. And it's the latest that's been happening in the crypto space. We've had Coinbase and Ethereum, Ether jumping more than 50% in the last month, back to levels that we saw in late May. But again, a huge pop off the lows. And for the first time, trading volumes of Ethereum have surpassed Bitcoin on Coinbase's platform. Coinbase is still seeing elevated trading volumes uh, in the past quarter. The CEO, Brian Armstrong, declared on the call yesterday he wants Coinbase Deirdre to become the, quote, Amazon of assets, which is weird (laughs) because Amazon sells everything. And part of Coinbase's whole thing was that they wouldn't sell just everything in crypto space. Even the fact that they added Dogecoin has upset people who think it has no business being on a platform like Coinbase. Yeah, and what did he add? 22 different digital currencies in the second quarter, which is more than they added over all of 2020. So it is kind of a curious statement because Coinbase has really built itself and its reputation on, (laughs) to use a phrase that, The others just use being the tortoise of the crypto world, moving slowly and a little more carefully. But maybe there's a bit of FOMO here. And Brian Armstrong wants to engage in all of that upside and all that volatility that comes along with currencies like Dogecoin. You do have to wonder, um, though, that it's competitors like a Falcon X and a Binance. They're starting to get more in the regulatory line and compliance. And that's really seen as a strength. So we'll see how this shapes up. And Mike Santoli, what's the read these days, you think, from crypto back to the traditional markets or to things like gold, inflation. I mean, how, how, where does it fit in your dashboard? It's interesting because it doesn't really seem to track with uh, day-to-day macro type uh, inputs or even necessarily act uh, in concert with inflationary expectations. It, to me, is a risk asset and it behaves largely like a risk asset. It traded very closely with some of the more speculative parts of the market. Uh, and I, you know, I'm on board with the idea that it's electronic gold, a digital gold. But gold also, by the way, was always a little bit of a side sort of orphaned asset class mm. for 100 years after you were able to trade it. So I don't think that means it gets to the core of the markets uh, if, in fact, you think that's what it is. Yeah, no, well said. As everybody's concerned about whether it's the new gold, the gold itself hasn't always been uh, that exciting or, or even performed that well, as we remember from years during the last expansion. Uh, speaking of performing well, Kathy Woods is not completely done with China, but she still has plenty of concerns. In a company presentation, she said the valuation of Chinese companies may still not have found a bottom. The KWeb China Internet ETF is still down more than 50 percent from its recent highs. And Wood dumped nearly all of her China exposure in the ARK Innovation ETF as that index is down about 3% this year. 
So, Michael Yoshikami, Kathy was saying she's still open to specific innovation ideas, you know, emanating from China. But I was surprised that she's not yet uh, buying the dips, so to speak. Oh, I think it's way too early to buy dips, Kelly. I think at this point, it's really a huge unknown what the Chinese government's going to do. Look what they did to the education industry. People are talking a lot about tech. The education industry in China, which is a billion-dollar industry, was just crushed when the government basically changed all the rules. So you really don't know what curveball is coming. So in my perspective, it's not time to buy the dip. It's time to watch. Certainly be open, like Kathy says, but be very, very careful because there's regulation coming out of nowhere that could completely submarine any business you invested in China. Yeah, people's heads are still reeling, Deirdre. I'll give you the last word on this. I mean, there's another very famous investor, Masayoshi Son, who earlier this week also said that he's in wait and see mode. I mean, he has tons of investments in China, Alibaba being the biggest one, and he thinks it's too early. So he's putting those plans on pause. But like Kathy Wood, he believes in that long term innovation story. Uh, But she's not the only one. And I'm with Michael in that uh, there's still a lot to be seen here. All right. Finally, it's the stock story of the day, perhaps formerly known as Weight Watchers. WW International posting a smaller than expected quarterly report, and its shares are down about 25 percent. They were shy in both the top and bottom line in their earnings. The CEO, (coughs) Mindy Grossman, says research shows customers are looking to enjoy social reconnection again instead of recommitting to weight loss and wellness, (laughs) implying everyone's going out as opposed to focusing on weight loss. Um, Michael Santoli, what have we concluded from the pandemic, though? I mean, I thought some people lost weight, some people gained weight. We were talking about this as it relates to Krispy Kreme. Um, Do you think, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is this just a convenient source of blame for her? Or do you think that that macro trend is overarchingly true about the reopenings and people's weight loss strategies? I think it's tough to generalize. Uh, Look, you couldn't actually get a Peloton bike for a period during the pandemic. Clearly, people, some people decided they wanted to make it a priority. Uh, I do think there's a risk, and maybe the market is uh, determining this or or guessing, that it's just a little bit out of step with the mode of wellness and fitness and weight loss of the moment. I mean, in my memory, Weight Watchers has really had to surf from different approaches based on what is perceived to resonate. You know, you go from points to it was all the packaged food and it was a dictated menu and then it was just the fitness trackers. I mean, all of it. But the basics of it is we know basically what has to be done. It's about what tricks seem like they work right now for the current generation. And, <laughs> yeah. and this might be a little bit of a mismatch. All right, Mike Yashikami, I'll give you the final word. The stock's down 40% from the highs, whether it's that or Peloton or any of the other ones you kind of put in the wellness basket. What, do you, what would you have people do with them at this point? Well, I think I think Mike had it absolutely right. Um, How is Peloton in demand, but Weight Watchers is not? So if Weight Watchers uh, can't figure out what Peloton is doing, I think that's really the challenge. I think it's a um, uh, a convenient uh, target to say that everybody wants Krispy Kreme and various other uh, whatever food is out there. But um, I think that really it comes down to execution for the company. I wouldn't really say that this is a company that. is necessarily capturing really the change in what's happening in the world right now. And that's the adjustment they need to make. And that's why I think investors are punishing the stock. Sounds like they need to teach a class on the Peloton app. Uh, That's my conclusion uh, from this discussion today. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) We appreciate it. Michael Yoshikami, Dear Jabosa, and Michael Santoli for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, Lordstown Motors will report after the bell today. And after its recent stock drop, can the company survive? Shares are down another 6.5%. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back. Shares of Lordstown Motors have lost 80 percent of their value in just six months. When the company reports results this afternoon, investors won't be too focused on profits or revenues. It's just going to be about survival. Philip Bo is here in studio with a little preview for us. And they're down another six percent today, Phil. Uh, well, remember, they're pre-revenue. So there's no revenue. That's not going to be reported. And in terms of the loss, I hate to say during any financial reports, the numbers don't matter. But in this case, nobody's really focused on the numbers. What they're focused in, uh, focused on are three things that really do lead to the question of whether or not Lordstown Motors can survive. First of all, what's happening in terms of its liquidity and its seeking capital? Remember, it was back in May when they said we need either capital or strategic investors. Since then, it's been crickets, very little from the company. A production update, where are they in terms of actually getting to production uh, when it comes to the uh, endurance pickup truck? And then finally, what's happening with the CEO search? They have not named a CEO uh, since Steve Burns was uh, booted out of there or he resigned after uh, the company said that he was not uh, completely straightforward in terms of reporting uh, orders for the endurance pickup truck, which then raises the question, when you take a look at shares of Lordstown Motors, what will people be wanting to hear during the conference call today? And the big thing that they're going to be focused on is what exactly is happening with the DOJ investigation. Now, do I expect them to get a detailed answer? No, they may very well just say, look, we're not going to comment on an ongoing investigation. Uh, But anything they say about this, that will be moving the stock. And then with regards to the endurance pickup truck, Look, they rolled this out in terms of uh, a a prototype, and they said this is going to be coming to market before the end of the year. Then they said we need some capital in order to even build it. They're supposed to start production this fall. What's going on with orders? I mean, do they have any true commitments, or do they still have expressions of interest? So just a a handful of questions, big questions that need to be answered for investors to say, okay, I think there's a chance this company survives. What's the scuttlebutt in the industry? You know, how are they viewed by, there's so many competitors, and obviously all the legacy companies themselves are trying to to pull off this transition. What impression do you get? Are people just watching to, like, everybody basically see if they can pull it off? Uh, I think they're watching, and I think there's a lot of skepticism that they'll pull it off. And that's, that's reflected in the market right now. Investors are skeptical they can pull it off. Look, it's tough enough, even if you are well capitalized, to make it in the auto industry. If you're not well capitalized, if you're trying to come out with a brand new product, what kind of confidence can you expect customers to have? Seriously. I mean, if if, let's say you run run a construction company, would you want to buy this truck not knowing if there's how is it going to be serviced? Will this company be around in a couple of years? I mean, these are all the questions that you would you would be asking yourself before you say, sure, I'll commit to buying five or ten of these trucks. It's a great point, especially with an audience like that, uh, which is so much of the market for the trucks. Phil, we appreciate it. It's great to see you here. Good to be here. <laughs> and we look forward to those results after the bell today. Again, Lordstown down about 6% in the session. Shares of ThreadUp have also turned lower after their results. Bottom line met expectations, but revenue in a key consignment business came up short. The CEO joins us next. Welcome back. Shares of ThreadUp have uh, moved, been moving lower throughout the day, I should say. They're down about 3% right now. This after reporting results, and despite the second-hand e-commerce platform delivering a relatively positive second quarter, revenue was up 27% year-on-year. Profit margins, gross margins, actually expanded by about four points to 74%. They even issued upbeat guidance. So let's talk to the CEO about these results and more. Courtney Reagan joins us with James Reinhardt. Courtney. 
Thank you very much, James. Thank you for being here with us. You know, Kelly ran through the quarter. Analysts pretty positive for the most part. But the Delta variant is really throwing a wrench in so many different things. Are you seeing a change in behavior in either your consumer or your business clients as a result? Yeah, Courtney, I mean, we had a very strong quarter. I think we updated guidance for Q3. I mean, I think we're feeling very good about the progress in the business. But, you know, the Delta variant is is one of those things that, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on. You know, nothing so far has impacted the business, but but certainly we want to be prepared, uh, you know, should it affect, you know, our operations, you know, or our consumer. So we're keeping a close eye on it. Processing time is the one part of the report this quarter that a lot of analysts are fixated on. In 2020, it was taking 20 weeks to process those bags that get sent in with the clothes that consumers want to resell. You brought it down to 12 weeks, but then that's up from eight weeks. I mean, how? what's the long-term plan? It doesn't seem like you're going to hit that two to three-week processing time by the end of the year. Aren't you missing out on some selling opportunities if you can't get the inventory processed and online? Yeah, I mean, Courtney, look, processing capacity is way up. Processing hours are way up. So we're putting more items online than ever before. Uh, But at the same time, we've really struck a nerve with the American consumer. And so we're getting more supply and we're getting more bags than ever. I think you know, most of the analysts noted this is a high class problem, right? We have tremendous interest in our clean out service. And so I think it's incumbent on us uh, to continue to invest in the business uh, to meet that demand. But I think we feel very good about uh, the fact that we have never spent any money uh, acquiring sellers and we have this tremendous uh, supply opportunity. So on the one hand, you're right, which is, a, you know, we're leaving some money on the table on the revenue side. You know, on the other hand, um, I think it gives us a lot of confidence uh, in, in our future and our ability to deliver our, uh, on our guidance. James, it's Kelly here. I've dabbled in these different platforms. I believe yours, maybe Poshmark, uh, The Real Real. I, and I would say that I really appreciate the convenience. You know, as people look to get rid of things, it's much easier, like you said, throw things in a bag and kind of off they go. But you don't get a lot for it. <laughs> what would you say yeah. to people <laughs> like me who have dabbled with these platforms and go, you know, I'm not sure if a couple bucks here or there is worth my time, um, especially if you have to wait a long, long time to kind of get that. Where Do you think you're getting to a point where you could give people more for their money in the future? Or is that just the reality of this market is that, you know, it's kind of like cars. Once you drive it off the lot, you know, you lose 40 percent of the value or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, it really does depend on the brand and the category. We sell 35,000 brands across 100 categories. So there are definitely brands, you know, where we pay a lot for, you know. So for luxury brands, we pay, we pay as much as 80% wow. uh, of those items. But then for lower price brands, uh, we pay less. And so I really do think it's ultimately about what is the residual value, uh, what is the brand equity uh, that remains. And, um, and so what we really try and do is pay people a fair price. But as you mentioned, it's all about the convenience. And I think the reason why we've created this incredible supply advantage is because it is so darn easy. Uh, People love it. They keep coming back. Um, And so we want to balance the the payouts uh, with the convenience because we think the American consumer really, really values uh, that convenience opportunity. James, you recently put out a report commissioned 
buy thread up talking about the opportunity of the resale market, basically saying it's growing 11 times faster than regular apparel. It could be worth $77 billion by 2025. And you kind of have three um, silos going right now. You've got your main business of resale. You just acquired Remix to get you into the European market, but you also offer retail as a service. So what is the biggest growth opportunity? If I want to be an investor in your company, you're only two quarters into a public company. What should I be paying attention to for growth? Yeah, we've been, we've been busy. Um, you know, I think the, the bread and butter today is our core marketplace. Uh, you know, we provide great services uh, to our sellers and we provide this incredible shopping uh, experience for our buyers. And I think what you see with our RAS business, resale as a service, you know, we added four new uh, clients this past quarter, Fabletics, um, Farfetch, LG, Madewell, uh, that have tremendous upside for us. I think this is going to be an improving uh, you know, a, a rather a bigger part of what we do in the future, I think, which is exciting. And then certainly Europe uh, is a big market. You know, global data estimated that market to be you know, 20 billion growing to, you know, 40 billion over the next few years. So I think what you'll find, you know, as an investor in our company is there's a great core engine. Uh, and then we have these additional vectors for growth that I think will compound uh, the opportunity for thread up over time in what we believe will be a very, very big market uh, over the next five, seven, 10 years. All right. Well, thank you both, uh, Courtney Reagan, along with ThreadUp CEO James Reinhardt, for joining us. A little bit more color on the quarter and what lies ahead. We really appreciate it. Meanwhile, the housing boom isn't just raising prices for home buyers. Good luck trying to find a rental these days. We're going to run those numbers for you next on The Exchange. heard a lot about people leaving cities during the pandemic, driving up prices for homes across the suburbs. With so many people buying, you might think rental prices would be dropping, but you'd be wrong. Diana Olick has the story of skyrocketing rentals for us. Diana? Kelly, you can thank the recovering economy and the housing shortage. Landlords are seeing bidding wars and dollar signs normally reserved for home buyers. We've been leasing property for almost 20 years, and we haven't seen an applicant pool this competitive since we've started. Vipin Motwani put this Clinton, Maryland townhouse on the rental market just a few weeks ago and had 20 showings and 10 offers. In July, rents nationally rose 7% year over year for one-bedroom apartments and 8.7% for two-bedrooms. That's up from 5 and 6.5% annual gains in June. Rents for single-family homes in May jumped 6.6% year-over-year. That's nearly four times the annual increase seen in May of last year. All real estate is local, and in the first half of this year, New York City saw its rent applications double compared with 2020. San Francisco saw a 79% increase. Seattle, 55% jump. All that according to Rent Cafe. Meanwhile, Boston saw only a 5% gain, Charlotte up 8%, and Portland, Oregon up 9%. The rental applications that we're getting right now, you're seeing higher credit scores. You're seeing applicants willing, willing to put down more in terms of security deposit. Um, you're seeing strong rental history as well. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case uh, pre-COVID. And the demand is so strong, Motwani says, because he's seeing a lot of renters who were trying to buy homes but were priced out, and so they decided to rent instead. Kelly? Absolutely. Diana, thanks. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.